This is the Cover 2 Podcast with Don Banks and Chris Price. Brady on the deep drop, stands in, fires down the middle for Gronkowski, makes the grab at the 45, spinning away from defenders. He's gone to the 20, to the 10, to the 5, to the end zone. The Cover 2 Podcast on Patriots.com. The play fake and the throw to the end zone for Antonio Brown. Touchdown, Pittsburgh. Don Banks and Chris Price provide blanket coverage of all things NFL on the Cover Two podcast. Eight different receivers have caught a pass from Matt Ryan today. He's looking to throw again. Wide open. Julio Jones has it. And in the end zone, touchdown Falcons. Nobody covers the NFL like the guys from Cover Two. Now, here's Don Banks and Chris Price. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Cover 2 Podcast. My name is Chris Price, joined as always by Don Banks. Don, how you doing? I'm good. How was your Memorial Day? It was awesome. It was. Lots of family time, lots of friend time, lots of hanging out. It was a great weekend to decompress and really kind of kickstart the summer. Yeah, I had uh, had some fun too. I did a little work. Um, Did one cool thing. I'm a history buff, and my wife and I made sure we went by yesterday, walked in our old neighborhood uh, near... Brookline, in Brookline, near the uh, JFK birth house. It was the 100th anniversary, obviously, his birthday celebration yesterday. That was kind of cool. It was rainy. It was cool. But they actually had a a tent out uh, erected, the National Park Service did, on the street, and a little little band playing. And there was a throng of maybe 40, 50 people waiting to take their uh, tour of the house. So it was interesting. I feel like there's more stuff that we should do as New Englanders, Bostonians, or whatever. Like, I can't remember. I did. I remember doing it in grade school, going out to, like, Old Ironsides and yeah. stuff and going to Bunker Hill. And, and th- those are the kinds of weekends when you should do that kind of stuff. Yeah. You and, know? Uh, I, you know, I haven't lived here as long as you. I was here, and then we left, and now we're back. But I remember doing the John Quincy – um, homestead uh, tour one day by myself, uh, right around when uh, HBO had the John Adams. Uh, yeah, John, I said John Quincy, John <laughs> Adams uh, miniseries going on. I went uh, down to Braintree and did that. So there's a lot out there if you have the time. I also want to ask you too, as the president of the David Price Fan Club, his first start of the 2017 season Sunday. In Chicago. Monday. Monday yeah. in Chicago. See, Monday afternoon. Talk, you know what? I, I know, knew I was going to screw up. that up. We were talking about the that. Holiday. Monday in Chicago uh, against the White Sox. Wanted to get your take on that. I thought it was okay. Yeah. Given the fact that he had not pitched at all over yeah. the, at the major league level over the course of the 2017 season. Not ideal, but it was okay. It was certainly something to build on if you're Red Sox. Yeah, that's where I was at. Um, I was notoriously hard on David Price last year. I, I'm trying to keep a positive attitude, but I'm, my expectation level is not real high. People keep saying, well, he's going to win 15 the rest of the year. I'm not so sure. I thought, yeah, it was kind of it was, it was optimistic for most of the time, but I'm sorry. I think you lose probably 75% of the games you give up a three-run homer, yeah. and he gave up a three-run homer, kind of grooved it after walking to at the bottom of the order. Uh, Melky Cabrera got him. So, yeah, it was, you know, he didn't go out there Pawtucket style and lay an egg. So that was good. That was positive. The idea that the the Red Sox can tread water and stay at, what, win two-thirds of their games, relatively competitive in the American League, until David Price becomes, at least in theory, David Price again, 
that should be enough to keep you interested over the course of the summer. It was have. a hopeful week when they won six in a row. I, you know, I was surprised they kind of put the bats away Sunday and and made no trouble for Seattle in the last game of the series. And then they followed it up with kind of an excruciating loss at Chicago. They they played sloppy at times. So I, it's Chris Sale day. That's the mm-hmm. best thing you can say. Chris Sale day. He's pitching tonight. Um, first time back. Uh, in Chicago against the White Sox. I expect a classic Chris Sale performance. You're going to put him up there with Pedro? Yeah, in, the, in that, in that where, where Pedro from, and I'm not saying like performance-wise, but the level of anticipation oh, yeah. for a Pedro Martinez performance He's from there. 1999. As an event. Yeah, as like mark that one off the calendar. The, the best analogy or the best compliment that I could give Chris Sale is the same one that you can give Pedro Martinez, where you would say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to go get a beer. I'm going to get a hot dog. No, I, I there's going to be something that's going to happen that I am excited to see because Chris Sale's on the map. I'll give you an example. I, I've caught three of his starts um, at Fenway this year, including last week, uh, last Wednesday night, and I don't go to get a hot dog or a beer mm-hmm. while the opposing team is hitting. I do it while the Red Sox... <laughs> Are up, believe it or not, yeah. because I want to watch Chris Sale pitch. That's yeah. how, that's how good he is, and I think that's how much of a draw and an event um, he has become at Fenway. We got Dan Hatman on the line. Uh, Dan Hatman is our guest this week. Dan Hatman is the director of the Scouting Academy, former NFL scout for the Jets, the Giants, and the Eagles. He's a guy that I have leaned on extensively. Over the last few years, this is someone who helps you see the game as a scout, helps you see the game from a different perspective. Dan Hatman, Dan, thank you very much for joining us this morning on the Cover 2 podcast. Well, thanks for having me, gentlemen. Good morning, Dan. I I have to ask right off the top, uh, there has been some very notable sports writers turned football executives over the years. Obviously, uh, Marty Herney is uh, at the front of everyone who's done what we do, what Chris and I do for a living uh, as a guy who was once a sports writer for the Washington Times, went on, obviously, to be the longtime general manager of the Carolina Panthers. I want to say Ernie Corsi. You could check me on this. Ernie Corsi also had some sports writing in his background uh, b- before he entered the league and, and, and spent years at, with the Baltimore Colts. He was a PR guy, I know. So can the Scouting Academy turn anybody into an NFL talent scout, even a sports writer? I'll tell you, the the thing that has hit me between the eyes of the last three years of doing this is that you're not born with the ability to scout football. I think what people are born with is the ability to analyze situations, do root cause analysis, problem solve, critical thinking, and I see it from all walks of life. I've had former players be incredibly compelling. I've had former players not want to do the process. I've had accountants and CPAs. Um, writers, all sorts of people have excelled in the program. So, yes, I think that if someone wanted to put the time in to learn the football side, um, they could absolutely get there. I think price would be a huge challenge for I, you. You know, it'd be, it would be. Look, because at, at our heart, we're sports writers and we're relatively lazy when you compare them to the rest of the group. But, <laughs> but it's, Dan, it's funny. You, br- you bring up the process and you, and you use that phrase, the process. What is the process when, when you get someone in there – uh, who wants to take the next step when it comes to you know climbing the ladder, whether it's you know NFL, CFL, whatever the case may be? What's that process like when you get them in there? The biggest hurdle is kind of extracting yourself from being a fan and watching the result of your team or the results 
of an individual player and really trying to unpack why they either had success or failure. And in an individual play, maybe we don't get the exact answer to that, but as we trend that out game after game after game, uh, you can start to draw those insights. And even when you start to really just discern really good questions and you know decide, okay, I've watched seven games, there's this particular area, this player's game, I don't fully understand, I have this question, it's about knowing how to go source that answer uh, and put that together as well. So there is an investigative part of it that um, you really have to try to unlock. And that's, I think, like I said, the biggest hurdle early on for people is so much of the football content is results-oriented, and I, obviously it makes sense. But if we're going to project a player moving forward, which is the job of a scout, we have to unpack not what they did before, but why that happened so that we can look into the future and decide if they can do it again. Dan, one thing um, the Scouting Academy and, and the website that is associated with it does really well is kind of track the movements um, in the scouting community, in the front office community. And, you know, a quite little headline the other day was that the Cleveland Browns, of all teams, of course the Browns, hired Ryan Grigson, the former longtime Eagles personnel man turned Colts general manager. Now, of course, we know that the Colts and the Browns had a rather infamous trade a few years back, the Trent Richardson deal um, early in the season before the trading deadline, a first-round pick, really the worst moment um, in the beginning, perhaps, of the Ryan Grigson downfall in Indianapolis. What do you make of the Browns being his landing spot? A lot of people had a lot of respect for his his personnel evaluation skills, and is that a good good fit for Grigson to try to rehabilitate his reputation? Yeah, I think it, it's, a, it's an interesting pairing because trying to connect the dots, it's not as apparent in terms of who he had uh, built a relationship with. It's, and everybody knows it's a relationship business. You don't always get jobs based on merit. Someone has to know you and believe in you, and um, you don't necessarily get a chance to prove it before you're hired. So I think one of the things that Cleveland's been attacking is um, the image of them just being moneyball, that they don't value. Right the actual scouting side of it from I do have some friends from the baseball side that actually had worked with Dee Podesta before and they they talk about him as someone who absolutely spent copious time with the scouts, really respected their process, wanted to, to understand it and, and extract from it additional value. So to go into the market this year, which was just flooded with um, quality people who were looking for employment and to take out someone like Grigson, um, you know, to me it says that they're they're looking to get another guy that has boots on the ground experience that knows how to go into schools um, and try to understand who these players are besides just the film. Dan, you spent some time with Rex Ryan. Give me your favorite Rex Ryan story. <laughs> so I, I luckily uh, spent time with Rex in, in the hard knocks year. So this is his first uh, first year there, and it was such a – um, you know, a culture shock in that building going from Mangini over to Rex. And I think that was probably part of the reason Rex was attractive. Uh, best story. I think it was... Um, First, Dan, were you in the room what do you got? for the GD snack? Were you in the room? You know, I, that's, I think that's the funny thing is with a fly in the wall in the back of that, so I don't want to I don't want to take the uh, the easy shot here, but I mean that one just floored everybody. Let's go to <laughs> <goddamn> <laughs> the team meeting and to hear him just launch into it um, and then go down that one. 
But that year was also the M&M's year. Uh, what, I can't remember which variety it was, but those things were like a currency around the <laughs> office. Um, people trying to, to hoard as many of them as possible. It's kind of like before Marshawn made Skittles big, I suppose. Maybe M&M's. Exactly. They're excellent with the M&M's. I, I, I wonder if he is the same guy behind the scenes as he is in the public arena. Does the persona fit yeah. the reality? I, I never saw anything different. There wasn't an on-off switch from camera to not camera or whatever. Um, I think you you absolutely see what you get with him. Very much transparent, on the sleeve uh, type of guy. So, yeah, that was my impression. I want, Dan, I want a, as honest a talent evaluation as possible on this next topic. John Marath, one of the Giants co-owners, basically came out. I believe it was a Jenny Vrentis story in the Monday Morning Quarterback, one of my former colleagues. And John Marath basically came out and admitted that the fan blowback level that he even kind of got a sense for was very much in the front of his brain in terms of Colin Kaepernick and a team signing Colin Kaepernick. Just as a talent evaluator, how do you explain him still being on the market? What do you think of his skill level and his eligibility right now to be an NFL quarterback? I think in a program where you have offenses built around things that move uh, move the pocket, go a little bit off script, will leverage a quarterback in terms of their lower body as well. So places such as Seattle, Carolina, Buffalo all come to mind. Um, Buffalo is, a, is kind of stocked in terms of their quarterback room. So I, they don't surprise me in terms of not adding him. Uh, but the Carolinas and the Seattles of the world do surprise me. Uh, there's nothing, seems like, from Collins' camp that indicates he's not willing to be a backup. The profile of a backup quarterback is different. You're not, unless you're going to go into a true competition, which clearly no teams are, um, you know, open to that right now. Either backup quarterback is there to support the starter in a variety of ways, help them prepare for the week, help them work through practice time, and then be able to pick up the torch and run with it without much in terms of repetition ahead of time, which is why you see veterans as the backup. But again, um, it seems like there would be places where he would be a fit from a schematic standpoint. Yes or no, prediction only. Is he in the league in 2017? Yes. I agree with you. Dan, have you ever had an instance as a scout where you were high on a guy, or maybe not not so much you, but maybe a colleague, where either you or whoever it is was high on a guy and you were told from a higher up, whether it was an owner, whether it was a GM, whether it was a coach, no, we're not going to take a chance on a guy like this because he could be a distraction, because there's some baggage there, because there's some issues there. We don't want to upset the infrastructure of our locker room by taking a chance on a player like this. Oh, certainly. Most of them were a little more related to um, maybe it was drug and party lifestyle, and maybe you were in a town, you know, uh, New York, for example, where it's it's too easy to go and have a nice night out. You know, you're not in Green Bay where you're trying to, you know, it's really hard to find a place to go party. And so you don't want to add too many of those kind of guys to your locker room. So I've definitely heard that. Um, and then in terms of the guys that are kind of cancerous to your locker room, meaning they you, you hire them from the outside, they're typically mercenaries, typically free agency, and, you know, talent there but they're going to come in with a set of expectations of how they've been treated other places and how people have responded to them and then expect 
this new locker room, this new uh, program to adopt them in a similar capacity. And that's why the, the free agency model is so hard is, again, you're hiring mercenaries. And it's, it's, it's not about what they do on the film. That's apples to apples. That's pretty straightforward. But it's about whether or not you can take a guy and make him one of the highest paid guys in the room and then have him seamlessly fit in to what you had built previously. So hard to do. I want to kind of look at the flip side of that. And one thing that we've discussed before is the situation in Seattle and Seth Wickersham's piece in ESP for ESPN kind of detailed a, a bit of a dysfunctional locker room. Are there teams that can kind of, for lack of a better term, maybe feed off of that level of chaos, that, 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 that edge tension, that, that tension, exactly that, that can develop in a locker room where you get some guys who maybe are not necessarily used to working with each other. Seattle seems to be one of those places where they might be able to make that work. There are not 32 uh, organizations that truly ride on uh, competition being the only thing that gets factored in. Meaning in other places, if you're taking, if you're a high value resource and we put in money or top pick into you you're going to get a long leash you're going to be here we're going to try to figure it out because we're attached to your success and then there's programs like seattle new england what have you where it's a meritocracy you'll get your shot but it's a meritocracy if you don't compete seattle's one of those rare places where that competition mantra that's not an act you know and they're they're going forward with that so it's a little bit different than the atlantas where it's the brotherhood um Seattle, you have to compete for your spot at the table if you want to keep it. Do you do you happen to believe when you when you hear and I'm I'm not going to go through what was in the story, but generally there was um, a scene painted that in the aftermath of everything after the play call that basically ended the Super Bowl against the Patriots, that this has been a team that has never quite got the genie back in the bottle in terms of teamwork, uh, both sides pulling in the same direction. I, I I told Chris, I think big picture it all boils down to basically a very age-old football issue, and that is offense versus defense when the offense isn't pulling its share fair of its, its fair share of the weight. Um, when you look at the Seattle situation for what you know, do you think it's it's degenerating, or do you believe that this is a snapshot in time and it could well be a different uh, vibe in six months? Well, I don't have any behind-the-scenes per se, but from where I, I sit and exposure to football in general, it's incredibly tough to sustain success in the league. Uh, that The Patriots are a unicorn. They're an outlier. It's, it's hard to even bring them into the, the conversation. So few programs can stay consistent year in and year out because there is such turnover. Eventually, your your undervalued resources become top-dollar players and personalities change and culture shifts. Um, I, I still have hopes that Seattle will continue to be um, a powerful organization moving forward in the NFC. But, yeah, I absolutely believe it's, it's plausible that you have offense-defense fights and guys have gotten paid and other guys haven't and some think they want to be compensated more and others have watched people have to leave and weren't happy about it but that's that's the nature of the business i don't think that's necessarily unique to seattle besides the if it's true the inability to get over that play call if that's still being carried over to this point um that's something 
that could be really detrimental to them. Dan Hatman of the Scouting Academy with us uh, on Cover 2 Podcast. Dan, I want a quick assessment. You don't have to go into any depth. There is a, um, a death to the... I guess, to the bitter end being waged in Tampa Bay on the kicking front. <laughs> Roberto Aguayo versus Nick Folk. Um, I, last year, went out to Oakland, did a great story, I hope, uh, on Sebastian Janikowski. Now, once upon a time, people might remember, he had a horrible first season in 2000, and people had him done, done, done. He was obviously a first-round choice in Oakland, unbelievably, way back when. But he is still around, still kicking. Are we burying Roberto Aguayo a little too early here, or is he done and Nick Folk is going to be the Bucks kicker? Uh, I think we are burying him too early because the competition still has to pan out. That's the thing that's always struck me about the kicking game, particularly the place kicker, that's a, that's a mental sport. Right there, because your body mechanics, it's like a golf swing. If you get in your head with that, it's over. So you have to, I shouldn't phrase it that way. It's going to be really hard until you can get yourself back to being normalized mentally. You have to believe in yourself. So if the, if the fans there want him to be successful, they need to back him. They need to make him feel good because it's a mental game. He wants to go out there feeling like he can do it. If he goes out there and feels like the world's against him, Everybody wants him to fail. I think it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way, um, and it's not a physical gift piece. His physical gifts are undeniable, but if he's mentally not in a place to, you know, leverage those, yeah, that's a that's a really tough one. Dan, last question for me. I wanted to get your take on how the Patriots have approached this off season. This is something we've discussed on the show on a handful of occasions before where they've really, I don't want to say they've forsaken the draft, but they've restocked via free agency, and the draft has almost kind of become an afterthought. I've compared this draft a little bit, you know, in terms of overall impact for the Patriots anyway, to 2007, where they only got Brandon Merriweather and a handful of other guys, because this roster is so full of veterans, and and, and it's just so deep at every position, and the guys that they were able to go out and get – uh, in free agency are more about, you know, those are the impact guys as opposed to the draft. I just wanted to get, again, your your, your take on the way New England has approached this offseason in terms of setting themselves up for the 2017 season and beyond. Oh, I think it's a, it's a great move. I think the player trade market is completely undervalued, and the beauty of New England is they're constantly finding those undervalued assets and exploiting them until the market catches up. So... Everybody else, oh, wow, they went out and they traded for players and used their picks that way. You know, maybe we should start considering that. And by that point, they'll be circling back, and the draft will have a few more players in it that they want access to, and they'll be fine there. They're, they're ahead of the space. Everybody's chasing them. So, again, you went out and acquired a player in Cooks that you would have not gotten in the draft at that draft slot at that position. Um, so, again, great move. Didn't I've seen a lot of, you know, they spent the second-round pick on Ely. My understanding is they – they traded back a number of picks, but not sacrificed an entire player mm-hmm. in order to acquire Coney. Um, so again, these situations have set them up for great success right now. These are young players. You know, Cooks again on a contract you can live with for now and work with on them later. You wouldn't have gained access to them. Um, again, they're just ahead of things. It's it's fun to watch them work because some of the stuff's just common sense when you come back and think about it. Stop doing what everybody else is doing and find out the other places to extract value.
Dan Hatman from the Scouting Academy. Dan, tell us a little bit about what you have coming up. I know that you have a constant rotation of lecturers, guest lecturers. I know Lewis Riddick from ESPN, Mike Mart has come in to work with you guys. Tell us a little bit about what you have going on these days at the Scouting Academy. And where the Scouting Academy is. <laughs> so we are an online program. We run three different 16-week semesters. They function like a gym membership. Materials available to you 24-7. For those 16 weeks, use as much of it or as little of it as you want to. Um, and in that session, you gain access to our full gamut of instructors. We're actually adding five new instructors here uh, about 10 days from now, which is exciting. So we'll have those guys geared up for our fall semester. And, you know, we are going to put you through the ringer. We're going to test you in every way, shape, or form to prepare you for how to do this process. We talk a lot with the teams as best we can asking them what do you want these guys to know, and then we go teach it to them. Dan Hatman from the Scouting Academy is a great follow on Twitter. He is a tremendous resource. Like I said at the top, he's a guy who I've worked with before, and he's given me a unique insight on the game. He's a really good guy to speak with, knows an awful lot about the game of professional football. And, Dan, if you ever lose Jerry Angelo, one of your instructors, it's like if he has – I don't know, he loses his voice. I do the best Jerry Angelo impersonation. So I could actually pinch hit online and fake it for at least a week. All right. I like that. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. <laughs> I won't do it on there, but I'll I'll uh I'll, I'll, I'll make that promise. Jerry's heard it himself. He, he loves it. So. <laughs> Dan, th- thank you very, very much for your time this morning. We really Thanks, appreciate it. How can people follow you on Twitter? What's your Twitter handle? Now you can find me at Dan underscore Hatton on Twitter. Perfect, Dan. Thank you very, very much for your time. Have a great day, guys. He is one of those guys, too, and you can back me up on this. If you're in a press box and you find yourself with a free half hour, you're there, say, two, three hours before the game, you walk up, you strike up a conversation with one of the scouts, and you can develop a relationship there that helps you see the game from a completely different perspective than than anything that you've begun to be acquainted with he as will a educate trainer. you yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, it's no. really it's really fantastic it really is here's my major takeaway chris and i'm going to get this out on twitter as soon as the show is done he said the patriots are ahead of the game for the most part yeah i'm, I'm that's breaking news <laughs> i didn't uh i didn't realize there now he just reiterated what we've known all along i love how he said by the time the rest of the league figures out how to copy their move this mm. offseason they'll be on and, and doubling Patri- back to what used to work uh, for those same teams. So. My favorite one in that vein, and, and I'm always I'm eternally fascinated with the idea of team building, is Belichick's statement the day after the Super Bowl, where he said, "Look, this is great, this is fantastic," but he stood up there and said, "The truth of the matter is, we're five weeks behind everybody else." Yeah. And you know, well, they're the, caught and, up now. They're exactly, caught yeah. up now. I, I'd say they're completely and totally caught up. I, I I know that someone kind of asked him that question the other day during the OTAs, kind of half, you know, kind of kind of tongue in cheek a little bit. But he said, yeah, it's it's more about the free agency, the draft, the combine, the the you know that that whole process. Now they are clearly caught up to where they need to be. Yeah, let's um let's get back to that Seahawks story just for a little bit, not to overanalyze it because I do think. There's tension on a lot of good football teams. This one does seem, though, that the trajectory is not is not headed in the right way. Yeah. And 
what Seth Wickersham, the author of that piece for ESPN, um, the magazine, did was he kind of used the fact that the team was willing to part ways with Richard Sherman via trade, which was clearly investigated uh, pretty thoroughly this offseason. He used that as a, a sign that, you know, this isn't all just rumor and innuendo. Mm-hmm. This team was willing to uh, to give up one of its defensive leaders, perhaps its most vocal um, face of the franchise type player, uh, because there are issues there along the lines of the offenses, offense versus defense uh, relationship. And I think that's now going to – we're going to see this season through the spectrum of looking for more um, proof, ammunition, mm-hmm. evidence that that ch- uh, the chasm has grown. I, I think this season, to, to your point, I think it's going to be a referendum. Yep. On, on where this team is at, at this stage. And I, I liked your phrase when you talked to Dan about this. Is this just a snapshot or is this indicative of something bigger? I am fascinated by teams, and we talked before the show, about uh, franchises that can feed off this level of dysfunction and chaos. You, you brought up the, the, the Cowboys of the early 90s. They had a little bit of that. They had a lot of drama. Yeah, and, and they seem to enjoy some of that that kind of kept him on edge a little bit at least for the first couple of years uh I, I'm just I think they can do it I think this 49ers team is capable enough to be able to Seahawks yeah I, I, that's right the Seahawks team is capable enough but to, there's our John Lynch mentioned exactly we have a winner <laughs> that that this this there we go thank, thank you. you no this, more calls this Seahawks team is good enough to be able to ride that edge because I think Carroll is a good enough coach to be able to find that balance. Yeah, I I, it, 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 but it's tough at the same time. It, the Sherman thing is like I want to kind of look at it in a vacuum because, and this is just maybe through a New England perspective, you got to keep churning that roster and you get rid of a guy a year too early as opposed to a year too late. And are we coming to the you know the born on date for Richard Sherman in Seattle? Does he need a change of scenery? Does he need a new challenge? Does he need a new set of teammates around him to be able to take his game from this level to this level? Yeah, I, I look at it, Chris, and I think, you know, are we overstating the, you know, the, the perhaps the jealousy factor uh, against Russell Wilson and his success? Perhaps, but it wouldn't be the first team to struggle with that particular where, you know, the, there's a feeling that there's two sets of rules, mm-hmm. one for the quarterback um, who makes everything go, and one for the rest of the team. Seattle is different. Again, this comes down to Seattle made its name and put its skins on the wall primarily due to defense. And when they when they let that play go awry, um, and really what, what they lost is the ability to stamp themselves in history as one of the greatest defenses of all time, one of the greatest franchises uh, of recent memory winning back-to-back. Um, you know, it's it's just incalculable. They they have not been able to recover their equilibrium completely, and let's not forget they've made the final eight mm-hmm. in the past two years. But to use a very bad local analogy, it feels a little like there's air escaping out of this football, and it's not going to be put yeah. back in. Yeah, I, I I believe they can do it. I do. I I, th- I think that this team is set up for success. Now, are they going to be the sort of team that's going to be able to win multiple Super Bowls? No, but I think that they are going to be competitive. I think they're going to be a Final Four team for an extended period of time, whether that's another three, four, five years. I think they are set up for success to a point where they are going to continue to win football games. They're going to be a double-digit win team. Now, the other thing, too, and I don't want to go too far afield on this, but you know, the idea of Sherman 
questioning his quarterback's toughness behind what is really a paper-thin <laughs> offensive line, I think that argument rings a little hollow. Yeah. I, th- I think that I am probably a little bit more aligned with Richard Sherman on this argument, but at the same time, you have to understand what Russell Wilson has gone through over the last couple of years playing behind a really substandard offensive I line. I would agree with that. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big Russell Wilson fan. I actually lived in Madison, Wisconsin the year that he led the Badgers to the Rose Bowl. I kind of saw him um, as, as that college senior. Did not expect his NFL success, so I'm not going to pretend I did. But um, – I think he's done almost you know everything and more that he could do behind that offensive line and 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 with the challenges that his game faces mm-hmm. which let's be honest he he cannot see the the throwing lanes like a 6 foot 2 yeah. quarterback that's yeah. just obvious. Hey, I want to talking about a window that might be closing. I want to segue a little bit to um obviously last week one of the things when we taped uh when we did the show that had just happened was that Roger Goodell, the commissioner, and the rest of the league loosened the player celebrations rule. And unbelievably, it was almost universal mm-hmm. that, you know, finally some common sense reigns here. Um, they've, 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 they've allowed the players to be a little bit more individualistic, uh, to have those celebrations as long as they don't go cross certain lines. And then here comes Marvin Lewis, the Bengals coach, who I like, I respect. I've known him for a long time. He's been there since 03. I knew Marvin when he was a Ravens defensive coordinator um, around 2000. He strikes me as incredibly tone deaf, comes out and says it's sending completely the wrong message. We've taught people kind of how to play the game the right way. Boy, he doesn't sound like the guy that should have been the particular messenger on this uh, this edict. I would submit to you if 31 other coaches said that, no one would have an issue. But when you consider the way that Marvin and the rest of the Bengals have built their franchise with the guys that they continue to surround themselves with, it rings hollow. It, it really, really does. And we're talking... You know, and again, this is optics. It is. And that's a great point. The Joe Mixon. The Joe Mixon draft pick. uh, All the chances they've taken on quote-unquote character guys, Mm -hmm. some for good, some for bad. Um, But for him to then kind of focus on player celebrations, it just made it sound so... Um, it sounds hollow. Funny. It sounds hollow. It, it does. It, it sounds it, hollow. It sounds so yeah. insignificant compared yeah. to the risk that the Bengals were just willing to take in this year's draft. Yeah, on Joe Mixon, yeah. yeah. Although I, I do think it was interesting that apparently, I don't know if you saw this, but Ocho Cinco said that Goodell called him right. to ask him about these questions. I have a larger point on, on all of this. This is all leading up to, and this is, I think, in Goodell's mind, this is all leading up to 2020 in the new CBA, and it, these are these are yeah. little things. And I think we're going to see more and more of these little things yep. that Goodell is going to try and do to reach across the it's aisle. It's a charm offense. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not, look, this move by itself is not going to move heaven and earth when it comes to changing the minds of players when it comes to Roger Goodell. But we're going to start to see more and more of these as the new CBA comes up, 2020, that's the doom, you know, the doomsday clock. That's it's counting down to you know, the, 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 next the next CBA. Yeah, the next collective bargaining agreement, and we're going to see more and more of this from Goodell. Whether it's someone, whether it's Goodell coming up with these ideas himself, someone whispering in his ear, whatever the case may be. Look, all I know is that whoever decides to bring back the fun bunch, 
That's who I'm rooting for in 2017. I was going to ask you, what's your all-time favorite that's player the, celebration? That, that's the The best. fun bunch. The fun bunch. All right, let's I, tell I'm people. not a Redskins fan. All right, I'm let's tell Redskins people what, what era we're talking about. This is the early 80s Washington Redskins. Joe Theismann. Probably, exactly. For my money, one of the better teams of now, recent vintage. Was that the Smurfs? That was... I don't know if it was the Smurfs. Okay, I but, get but confused. But it was just. But it was the whole. They would. They would. Alvin they, Garrett. Yeah. They, they they would score a touchdown, and there would be a whole. There would be a big celebration, and all yeah. of them would get together and be, basically be a group high five. See, I'm I, I'm sorry. I think To whipping out the sharpie and signing the football to yeah. me is still the most. It, it beats Joe Horn in the cell phone. I thought it was the most creative. It made me laugh then. It still kind of makes me laugh now. Um, so I go. I guess more for the individual. I'm. I'm glad I brought up T.O., though, because I, uh, I have this little <laughs> topic I want to talk about. It's kind of off, off kilter a little bit, but a couple weeks ago I wrote about it in my Snap Judgments column. I was watching recently uh, one night uh, on HBO the 2017 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, okay? And all of a sudden it's like, all right, this year's class. It was like Journey, mm-hmm. Yes. Joan Baez, ELO, and I was like, wow. You know, like, do you think there are, are rock bands or singers out there who watch this and react the same way that happens every late January, early February when the Pro Football Hall of Fame names their class? There's always these outrages and T.O. comes to mind. I can't believe that so-and-so right. didn't get in. Didn't, wasn't there something a couple years ago with Steve Miller where Steve yes. Miller was upset? It's my quarterback. It's my quarterback. It's my quarterback. Setting aside the fact that, in my mind, ELO is criminally underrated, I have to think that there's some guys out there who are sitting there thinking, you know what? I deserve a spot in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, and, I've, been, I, I've, I've been putting in. I'm know. hoping that there's a whole little subculture of outrage, just like we kind of endure mm-hmm. – about the pro football, like, wait a minute, Yes made it? I can't. Yeah. If Yes makes it, I should have been in five years There's ago. There's a Steve or Art- Miller message board out there somewhere that's filled with that's people great. saying the absolute, in- raging against the injustice of our guy, Steve Miller, not being in the Hall of Fame. And the Steve Miller thing is a totally different thing. He, he didn't get tickets or something and refuse an induction. I don't know the whole story there, but I have to believe that there's some fans of bands out there who are sitting there banging the table saying, I can't believe that so-and-so isn't in the Rock and Roll Hall. All right, so we're going to do this very quickly. Okay. We're not going to waste a lot of time, but we're going to go through this year's entire class, and you and I are going to quickly, quickly render a verdict on their on their candidacy. Now, these, are, these guys are all in. Let's start with Pearl Jam because mm-hmm. we were talking a little bit about Pearl Jam. Uh, I say they are that classic candidate who rolled up great longevity stats mm-hmm. But we're never pure greatness for for any specific amount of time. So it was really about their body of work. You they say, had that they had that sweet spot of ninety two to ninety four with Vitology and Ten and and that that was for me for me if you're talking about Pearl Jam that was their that was their heyday. But but past that I agree with you. There was no if we're looking at it through pure Hall of Fame numbers and you say he is the so and so is the best in their game for three to five years. It's a little dicey. Okay, I'm gonna go yes. On Journey, just yeah. out of respect for Steve Perry's I, voice. No, yeah, you can't. Not. I'm a I'm a Journey apologist. So but I'm, I'm going to say no on yes, which I find 
somewhat humorous to say no on yes. I'm not a yes guy. I don't get yes. But you know what, though? There are people out there who are hardcore. I, I know of three or four people yeah. who are fans of yes yeah. who are hardcore yes fans. So maybe it's a case of the squeaky wheel getting agreed. Well, here's, here's my favorite yes stat. There's 19 members of yes, but only eight got inducted. How does that work? <laughs> it's, yeah, we're, we're talking about the level of dysfunction of the early '90s yeah. Cowboys. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's that. Maybe suddenly, there's a level suddenly, of dysfunction in the band that oh, you know we're not we're not going to you know you don't you don't make it you don't get the cut you don't make some, the cut. Suddenly, those 50 voters for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, of which I am not one, uh, don't look so bad. Joan Baez, yes, yeah, you got it. And yeah. and early extra points for being an early Bob Dylan girlfriend. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. ELO, you've already stated you think they're criminally underrated, yeah. but they're borderline. See, they're, I, they're, they're I, one of those. You know who they are. They're to use a baseball. They're Burt Blylevin. Okay, they're one of those guys. They're, they're, Without they're, the curveball, they're they're a great debate. They are. You're going to sit right. there and do, you can debate them for a long time. You can make positive negatives. I believe that they're an underrated. I haven't guy. thought about EL, ELO since the '70s ended, so I'm a no on them. Um, Tupac, you know. Tupac Shakur. I like. I. I'm not a huge hip hop guy. But I he, like it and I appreciate it. Seems seems iconic, right? Yeah. So I say. Hall of Fame should have iconic members. It should have iconic so members. So I'm a yes on that. Yeah. And then, lastly, I don't know who this guy is. Niall Rogers apparently is the front man for the band Chic. Chic. Ah. Who did, who I know one song that they did yeah, called no. Freak Out. So I'm sorry, Niall Rogers. Bad. Maybe he's more, you know what though? What? And this is something, this is, and again, not to get too far afield, but I, isn't he, he's a producer. Said and so maybe said it's a front like man. maybe it's, okay, but but maybe he gets in like in the same way that a you know that an owner or a, uh, or a writer or something contributor gets the, exactly contributor to the Hall of Fame. Okay, I'll tell Bill Polian yeah. that next time we run into each other that he's the Nile Rogers of the NFL. So what do you got going this week? Class. What's up this week? Uh, the you start know, of summer. Well, not really. I mean, the unofficial start yeah. of summer, but around here in New England, we don't have summer. That's true. Apparently, not, not, for not, another not, month, not for another month or so. Or so. But um, you, got, I, you got Chris Sale tonight. Yeah, we got Chris Sale to watch tonight. That's mm. that is the, the the best piece of news. Um, you know, this week, what? No, we don't have a horse race coming up until another Saturday. Not that's right. That's weeks. right. That's right. Um, wow, my my week's strangely devoid of anything interesting at this point. You sit there and you hope that you know. Chris Sale and, and David Price and you know these these guys, Rick Porcello, can become the guys that you know you all hope that they could become, and this team could again, like we said at the top, tread water, and you know rise to a level where they can remain competitive in the American League for an extended period of time. I do think um, you know I, I I think that the NFL people think it's really slow in May, and it is to a degree. But look how many topics we just hit on our little nfl late may podcast it's a lot of i always do enjoy a lot of stuff the arrival of june and june starts on thursday because june and july are the two months really that are as close to nfl uh downtime as you get so there's like that five week stretch yeah from mid early to mid june to mid late mid to late july where everything kind of falls off the radar screen a little bit. Yeah. I'm you know, I'll tell you one thing I'm looking forward to already is the Chip Kelly ESPN relationship. Oh. Now, that, now we didn't talk about that. We I don't think he's going to be any good. I think Rex is going to be great. I don't think Chip Kelly's going to be any good. Yeah, I'm, I'm I don't know what he's going to bring. If he's going to be acerbic, acerbic chip, which he was in press conferences, mm-hmm. he could be very acerbic. He could kind of be sarcastic and bite bite the questioner's head off. Or if he's going to try to Take the green curtain back and explain football 
the way he sees it, which that may be interesting. I, I would listen to that. I think he's going to be acerbic. I yeah. Just, I just have a feeling that he's not going to be – and I, like I said before, I've said this and we said this on an earlier podcast, I'm all in on Rex if he studies, and I'm all in on Jay Cutler because he doesn't give – he has no more, you know, what's left to give. Right. I just don't get that same kind of vibe from Chip Kelly. Well, I, I, I get this vibe that Chip Kelly wants to get back in the game, and he's going to be really nice, and he's going to be a little bit acerbic, but he's not going to really say anything insightful at all. Yeah, I, I'm. I guess I'm intrigued. I was always a little bit bigger uh, Chip Kelly fan than maybe some. I, I thought he, you know, I thought he was going to be a good addition to the league because he kind of saw things through a fresh perspective, and he didn't, he didn't practice in the same old coaching cliches, and he didn't like to waste time. People's time. He he kind of thought if he didn't have anything to say that was meaningful, he wouldn't say it. So now he's getting paid to talk. That'll be very very interesting. Eighteen million. What for the Forty ers He's getting eighteen million dollars from the forty nine. Wow. And he still That's wants a to work. Great huh? gig, man. Well, you'd never catch me doing That's that. That's good good for him. Feet he up. figured it out. He All did. right. He figured it out. Well that's another Cover 2 podcast. Another Cover 2 podcast in the books. We will be coming back at you next week here from Gillette Stadium. For Don Banks, I'm Chris Price. Talk to you soon, everybody. Thank you for downloading the Cover 2 podcast from Patriots.com. Second and goal to go from the two. Toss sweep right for James White. Cuts it under the right arm. Cuts it upfield. Driving forward. Diving to the goal line. It's still it. touchdown. They have completed the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. Log on to Patriots.com anytime for more news and more podcasts covering your favorite team and all things NFL.